Our first scripture reading is from Genesis, chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing for Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God, opened, then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Our second scripture reading is from Matthew, chapter 10, verses 24 through 39. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be the, like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, 
proclaimed from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes, one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Thank you. Good morning. As Christians or followers of Jesus, there are quite a few sayings that Jesus made that give us comfort, we take to our heart, we take as, as, as tenets of our faith. We like to hear sayings like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or, Blessed are the poor, are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then there's the way we should be doing things. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus would often say, peace be with you. We can certainly list a lot more. But it comes as a little bit of surprise when you think of all the comforting things Jesus said or the things that Jesus told us to do when he says this morning, do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to send a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and our enemies will be members of our own household. So how do you explain this to the young children in your Sunday schools? First of all, when you think of the sword being to bring justice about, when you start mentioning sword and justice, you could probably make a case for that. And certainly for the young boys, as soon as you start to mention sword, they'd perk up their ears and pay attention. But setting families against each other, sons against fathers, daughters against mothers, 
your own family being your worst enemy, that might just be a little harder to sell and more difficult to explain. In our first reading from Genesis this morning, we see a family set against one another. Granted, it's a different kind of family, but we see two sons of Abraham, one by his wife, Sarah, and one by the slave girl, Hagar. Now Sarah sees Hagar's son playing with Isaac and says, this continues to happen. This boy is going to get some of Isaac's inheritance, so let's send him back. And they do. God says, go ahead, send him back. And Abraham gives them a little bit of provisions and sends them out into the desert. Probably one of the first sibling rivalry stories we see in the Bible. But in order to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, we looked at when he says these things, we have to look at the historical background of the time. Because at that time, to convert to Jesus, a follower of Jesus, or converting to Christianity meant that you're going against hundreds of years of tradition of Jewish law. No wonder it would cause strife in families. And whenever there are strife in families, there tends to be severe heartache and angst. If you ever remember having seen, having seen Fiddler on the Roof, when Jewish law when the youngest daughter is going off with the, with the Russian soldier, and because of Jewish law, the father is supposed to turn his back on her and shun her. Luckily, emotion and caring steps in, and he does give the daughter the blessing. But at that time, if you're watching the movie and it's well done, or watching the play and it's well done, you can just feel the heartache, not only in the father, but in the daughter. It seems like there's nothing like religion to set people against one another, isn't it? I first learned this in high school, and, and I was oblivious to the fact that it was coming. I'd gone to Sunday school, and as a high school guy, I didn't go much to church. I didn't go to church very much, but Lo and behold, I started dating a Catholic girl. Now, back then in the early 60s, I didn't think anything of it. She was just a girl. I was strictly happy somebody would actually go out with me. And, uh, but somebody thought this wasn't very right, that I should be dating a Catholic girl. To my parents and my siblings' credit, they didn't make much of it. My father might have made an aside comment that, you know, probably can do better than that or shouldn't do that or something, but they didn't make a big deal out of it. But my uncles and cousins did. And I heard about it. And some of the comments were quite hateful, quite nasty, and actually tried to, uh, to uh, belittle or make slight, make 
the girl that I was dating seemed less of a person because she was Catholic. I was at least smart enough at that time not to mention what I'd heard from them to my father, or probably World War III would have broken out long before now, but it just, all of a sudden I realized, well, religions here, what, to make people against each other? I did get the last laugh, though, several years later when I was lucky enough to marry a very nice Methodist girl. And two of my cousins actually ended up marrying Catholics. So I, I got the upper hand. I really don't, I've really never studied or know much about the Middle East and the Arab world and the who was Christian, who was Muslim, who was what. But I did come across something that Leon Uris, the famous author, wrote in the book The Hajj, which is a Muslim tradition. And he said the following, before I was nine, I had learned the basic canon of Arab life. It was me against my brother, me and my brother against our father, my family against my cousins and the clan, the clan against the tribe, and the tribe against the world, and all of us against the infidel. June is designated Gay Pride Month, and just look at what the issue of LGBTQ, I keep getting dyslexia on the, on the uh, initials, rights have done to our Methodist family. We've got some churches that don't want to worship with others, some churches leaving. Obviously, religion plays a big part in the abortion issue. Just last week, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to oust two of their very large churches for simply allowing women to, to be pastors. And once again, they confirmed, and I, I believe the vote was overwhelming, that women should not come anywhere near the pulpit. Even in modern time, religious persecution is a sad fact. Even in the USA, or maybe quite prevalent in the USA, a land of supposed rigid freedom. Since, since the Twin Towers, Islamophobia has run wild in this country. Anti-Semitism is on the rise and quite parent. So the scripture reading from Matthew, that the sword Jesus brings stands in contrast to peace. There's really a simple reason, believe that it stands for God's justice. Why was Jesus back then criticized by the religious leaders? Because he healed the people? He fed the poor? Probably not the real reason. The sword he brought was the work he did in exposing the inherent, the injustice inherent to the Jewish religious society, 
which was centered around the enforcing the purity laws rather than showing compassion and mercy for the poor, sick, and marginalized. Jesus opposed a corrupt system and a sick system, and as a result, was perceived as threatening to the status quo. And in this way, Jesus' words are still very relevant today, aren't they? We, too, need to confront the injustice of our society and the injustice wherever we see it inherent in our religious communities. As long as people are being profiled and persecuted under the umbrella of religious feeling, freedom, they can't be true praise. When I was looking at the prayers for the conference, my, actually Linda brought this to my attention, the one from, Tuesday, from Wednesday was written by Wee Chang, and it said, this is hard, Jesus, we want peace, because we don't have peace within. Give us a sword, not the one that we wield against others, but the one that cuts us, cuts off all that is written our, that are within us that keeps us from having your peace. Fear, anger, resentment, hopelessness, hate, our own helpless ego, our own lack of trust in you and in one another. Give us a sword, Jesus, that we may have a peace deep within that transcends all things so that we may be your peacemaker for the earth. And then he says, Amen. But when we think of the sword that we will raise against justice, I often think back to that, that oh, I, Braveheart, I guess it is, the woman, the, the movie about William Wallace and in Scotland and how the Scottish people got up on the hill and they raised their big swords and they went running down, slashing everywhere they could. And when we're talking about raising our sword to justice, we just can't run down a hill, can we, and slash at everything we see. Jonas Salzberg, Salz, Salzgeber, wrote that the sword of justice is ill-placed in the hands of an angry man. We need to be confident that the justice we're working for, not just our own feelings and wants and resentments and desires. There's also something else when we're fighting with justice that needs to be considered. When we go back to Genesis, we notice that God saved Hagar's son from dying of thirst in the desert, saying, he will make a great nation of him. And it goes on to say that God was with the boy. When we're fighting for justice, is there any way, and I ask this question because I don't know the answer, is there any way that we can consider that the people that we may be opposing, that God is actually with them and working with them also. It's a hard thing to believe, but, but our faith tells us that there's value to God in every single being. 
It's like love the sinner and hate the sin sort of stuff. Carl Gibran wrote that the gifts from which derives from justice are greater than those that spring from charity. Charity is relatively easy, isn't it? Yes, we give something. Yes, it's needed. We've done a good thing. But after we've done our charity, two months, six months from now, there's probably going to be a need for more charity. Whereas justice, and we've talked about this in meetings all the time, justice is changing the system. The system that creates justice. Bernice King, Martin Luther King's daughter, wrote the following. Justice and revenge are not the same thing. Justice is a continuum that includes accountability, change toward preventing further injustice, strategic hope, etc. As my father said, justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. And I really like that quote because of the word accountability in there. We have to make sure that what we're fighting for is God's justice. I remember back when our church, the Lebanon United Methodist Church, voted to become a, a welcoming and reconciling council. And Judy was there, and Bob was there, and Linda were there. And I think we did it the right way. We didn't just bring it up and say, we're going to vote now. They had meetings, a lot of prayer, heard both sides, and then had their vote. Can't just run and slash. We have to take time, make sure that we're doing the right thing. The other thing about the sword is when I picture a sword, I want the kind that the Scottish people had the great big war type sword. I don't want a sword that they use in fencing or something like that. I want a big sword. And big swords are heavy, aren't they? They're made of steel. And of course, for people of stature, you might throw some jewels on and make it even heavier. But as we get older, that heavy sword gets heavier. It's easy to, it becomes very, not easy because it nags at us when we do it, but it comes common that we get tired of lifting that sword to fight for justice. And we decide, well, it's time to let somebody else do it because the sword gets heavier and heavier all the time. But I think as long as we can wield it, as long as they're injustice, we should try to say our part. The bottom line is, when it comes to injustice, we're not supposed to be silent. We're supposed to in God, follow in God's footsteps. God was really pretty belligerent. Jesus was too, when it came to speaking for the rights and for the acceptance of those who were prosecuted and marginalized. So if you haven't done it lately, I encourage to pick up the sword wherever you've seen injustice is done. I'd like to close with a poem written by English poet Robert Langley called Justice. There can be no justice if we sit idly by 
There can be no hope of change if people do not try. There is not a task from one group it affects both black and white. The same is true in policy on the left or on the right. We must grow beyond labels. We must always stand as one. There is a time of challenge and much work, and much work must be done. I know we can be better. We can all rise above. If we are to find true justice, at first we must find love. Thank you.